Hello, Internet, and welcome to another kind of episode of the Untold Talks of Spider-Man. We are moving to the second part of Volume 2 of Web of Spider-Man moving forward. So I'm going to have to kind of give you the dressing before we just get to the stories. Today we're going to be covering the main story of this second chunk, which takes place in issues 8 through 10 of the second volume of Web of Spider-Man, leaving only the last two issues um, to go behind, I guess. So... What I'm going to be doing is talking about that main story, 8 through 10, The Extremist, here. Then there's a story in, Love, in 11 and 12 that is Mary Jane and the Black Cat uh, doing some different things. That's going to be a fun story. And then there's kind of some B-sides held without these la- through these last few issues. And then I'll cover that in an episode. So I'll probably save that secondary main one for the last episode and do kind of all the B-sides before because those are going to be not as exciting and i want to end on a little higher note so that's the plan it's only three episodes left there you go and to kind of get some of the dressing out of the way if you want to read these digitally they're all on marvel they're all on comiXology there's a digital collection on comiXology called the extremist within web of spider-man um that might save you a buck but i don't know if it has the b-sides or not Uh, And that trade is also just a physical trade that you can get for about 10 bucks. But truth be told, if you do your digging and know where to look, you could probably get the issues cheaper. None of these are, uh, you know, key issues or whatever the collectors are calling it these days. So, you know, pick your poison. uh, But I might say I'm going to go through the plot a lot, especially on this first story, because there's not much else to talk about. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I I think it's fun, ultimately, but there may be other places you want to put your uh, dollars for your spider energy if you're hunting and pecking. Okay, so the extremist, just the credits alone is going to be a bit of a bugaloo. So Fred Van Lente wrote this thing, definitely. Then we get to the art, uh, and that's a little different. So in issue eight, Javier Rodriguez as artist, I'm assuming pencilist and maybe inking, and then uh, Vincente is doing colors. Then in issue nine, Patrick Olaf did the first two pages, and then Javier Rodriguez did pages three through thirteen, and then Nick Degada did pages fourteen through twenty-two, and then he does the art through all of issue ten as a penciler slash inker, I believe, because they don't list inkers; they just list like artist and then colorist. Um, so colorist on. On issue 9 is Andres Mosa and then uh, Brad Simpson for issue 10. 
God, then the letters is Joe Caramanga on issue eight, and then nine and ten is Clayton Coles. Both of them are part of VCs, so part of the same company. They just handed it off there. They're both names you see a lot associated with lettering. I, God. Uh, <laughs> so kind of a hodgepodge on the art especially in issue nine like i don't know what was going on like this book was being shuffled clearly so there you go with that i i don't think it affects the book too much especially because they're big on the issue splits but i'm sure i'll comment more throughout all right the extremist let's get to it uh it opens on this kind of extremist right-wing, kind of for-the-day Fox News kind of day show, opinion piece show uh, called The Mark of Brandon, whose star is Mark Brandon, which I'll give points to is a more clever name than most of these shows bother with. Uh, and he's having it out for Spider-Man, which feels... A, a bit much to have another media type having it out for Spider-Man, but he's short-lived, don't you worry. So, uh, we learn in quick order that a nut, we assume it's the extremist, uh, is sending him manifestos and quickly catches up with Mark and is going to gun him down in the street. The big, like, action point here, an opening kind of, I, I don't know, moment, is that this guy in this crazy blue and white suit is rambling to him about like the gray and the white and people who fall into the gray are essentially bad and those who stick to their duty and do right are in the white and he's claiming that this guy is pushing people to the gray and not you know espousing good morality and so with a gun pointed at him in the street no one's paying attention no one else can see him and just maybe are giving mark the side eye because they think he's freaking out so i i don't know it's a heck of an opener and it's pretty interesting you know it's it's a big question mark like how like okay it's some power set but i mean how does this all work it's interesting but as we move on we're going to see that hinging on the power set is maybe not the strongest part so that's kind of our open. And then we cut to Peter Parker and a temp agency and they're playing off the Palmer joke. You know, Peter Palmer, Peter Palmer insisting that's his name, even though he's correcting them about his own name. I don't know. Um, I'm just going to note this a lot. Fred Van Lente has some funny lines in here, but they are never like from Spider-Man himself or Peter Parker himself. It's just a weird bit with that. And I just... I've always struggled with friend Fred Van Lente as a writer because I always know it's going to be like all right, but I'm not going to love it. Just something about his sensibilities and how he puts things through his stories just never fully clicked with me. Um, so Parker finds out, you know, working for this temp agency is going to be a real chore. It gets him thinking about, you know, his prospects, you know, because short of being a shutterbug, how is he going to make a living? And this is something I like to see addressed in Spider-Man because I've always taken issue with him being a super responsible character, but not having enough responsibility to take care of his finances and those around him, which is typically one of the primary ways an adult takes responsibility so i don't know i i liked that push on the character i i thought that was a fun moment and while he's in his parker luck his moment of woe he quickly stumbles upon charlie who's 
looking at a crime scene and this is where the extremist has left Mark Brandon and he's also left this manifesto about the gray versus the good you know and we there's a card actually and I'm going to look at this to make sure I don't misspeak so the card here interestingly is black and white not blue and white so there's some color scheming that gets missed I believe but in the black is you in white letters then me in black letters on white so it's just half and half you know split is me and so yeah i'm getting very mr a vibes which i believe is a healthy connection i mean steve dicko was the creator of spider-man went on to create mr a i think creating a villain for spider-man with that method mode is an interesting way because there's going to be some philosophical mayu there uh from someone's who from the mind of someone who helped create this character i i think that's a really bold choice there's some potential meta reading there but i don't really care about the meta reading i care about the reading of it like this is a fun place to take spider-man i'm i'm on board with this part uh i just wish the theming was a little more consistent especially from the opening because if we're trying to set up this villain uh the color would actually indicate something a little more interesting it would be subtle but it would be there um and so in doing all this part of the manifesto is that spider-man is the extremist golden boy like, like he's saying spider-man is the perfect agent of morality basically which is dubious and interesting uh so the way spider-man deals with this because he doesn't know how to get a hold of this guy he doesn't know how to chase him or how to do anything especially when no one saw him and there's next to no traces but this guy is clearly going to be goaded very easily he goes to his closet and keep in mind this is a his spartan room in his new york apartment he goes to his little closet and then there's this huge box with a full-size piece of paper that says bad spidey picks never ever use which is just a comically overblown statement like if this was like a shoe box or something i'd be like okay but it being a full-sized box of him having these pictures with a never ever use is such a looney tunes moment in this otherwise kind of more morally serious spider-man story it just really hit me as a miss um so and i have a feeling part of that is due to the art duties being juggled here so from here we we get the reaction of flash who is currently in a wheelchair teaching um teaching people how to play sport it looks like basketball but could be something else especially because those in wheelchairs doing sports tend to like put a spin on stuff and kind of make it their own so uh two guys are off in the corner laughing and there's these spidey spidey fail picks that parker's put up and he's made this website and flash is furious but it's a big deal i about half the issue is like going through this and having fun with these dumb looking spider-man photos uh and we get a little flash of JJ saying, this is the single greatest website I have ever seen, which that one made me laugh. And then there's Betty Brant, which at this point is Bugle Girl, and she's been trying. She says that Parker's site has gotten 2.5 unique hits, which we all know Dan and Mark get on the regular, but for someone like me, that would also be big, and Parker's trying to figure it out. And they've set him up as something of a computer Luddite uh, in the temp agency, 
but uh, here it, it feels a bit out of touch. Like, one way or another, he is a photographer, even a freelancer, working at the Bugle in this day and age, which was a few years ago, but still, like, you should know the ins and outs and have some basic metric ideas. Like, I, I, I get it's here for comedic purposes and also to kind of cue the reader into, like, that's big, but it makes Peter Parker come off as kind of ignorant for an industry that he's been working in his entire life. So, again, I just the way they write Parker here irks me a bit. And the Avengers call Peter to uh, talk about the website, which he hangs up, says the callback if it's Ultron. I like that little little note. But then he gets back to what he's looking for, and he looks to try to kind of put the coup de gras on the site. And he, he starts to write something called Why I Hate Spider-Man. And we get this beautiful uh, full-page spread of like him watching the robber run away, him lifting the rock off of... I assume it's Ned Leeds, but it could be a number of characters, actually. Him dealing with MJ being hurt, seeing him all bruised and battered, uh, the death of Gwen there, and him just kind of, you know, dealing with that, and he, he gives up on that, you know. I should think of something I can actually share. And, and that's when Flash shows up and is screaming at Parker. <laughs> So I, uh, I know I like that bit. And there's a bit here about how Spider-Man pushed Flash to do his tour of duties. And if that hadn't have happened, he'd probably still have use of his legs. This is going to come back in a way that I think was supposed to connect better in the next issue. Um, but at this point, Michelle shows up and complains about Parker being a slob and having used her computer, which, frankly, I'd be even meaner than she was if my roommate was doing this. I'd be freaking out. And then we see that You Me card show up on her screen and boom, the extremist is here. And he's here for Parker, who's, you know, insulting his hero, much the way Flash was. Um, I don't know. The duality between those two at this point just doesn't like it's there, but it doesn't really read for anything with the story. But what's interesting in this closing, much like the opening of the story, is Parker can't see the extremist. And he has a gun pointed to his head, but unlike before, he can't see it, but his roommate can. So Michelle has some sort of special clairvoyance that Spider-Man's missing? I thought that was interesting. So, yeah. We open up on issue 9, and we're at the Xavier School. And I'm wigging out because I'm like, wait... And I flipped back, and it's JJ on the cover. So I'm like, okay, this is a Spider-Man comic. I'm in the right place. And get some weird misprint or something. And yeah, it's it's kind of funny because we have a hidden crossover. I'm excited because I love my Spider-Man X-Men crossovers because those are my two big Marvel loves, which are, you know, the lion's share of what Marvel prints. So I guess that works out. <laughs> And yeah, so we find out this lady's bringing Tyler to Xavier, but Tyler isn't a mutant. And so he's rejected from the school and his mom's freaking out saying, you're special. No one else can see it, but I can. And we're gonna, we're gonna get there one day. So obviously the extremist is Tyler. Okay. And then we're back to our action. And 
there's this whole weird joke about my uncle Ben once said, Peter, my boy, if people are yelling at you and there's a threat, even when you can't see, hear or smell and your spider sense is going haywire, maybe you should just duck anyways to be sure. Oh, okay. He didn't actually say that. That's the kind of wise thing he would say. I just, it's such a Fred Van Lente. This is why it falls flat for me. It's just, it's a non-joke. It just irks me that it's there. Like, I feel like the page would have been better if we just had the pictures and the straight dialogue. Don't stand there. What are you doing? Yada yada. Then his fridge is wrecked, the roommate runs off, and the extremist does this thing now that we get a different feeling, because it's a character that we roughly know and isn't a public figure, so like, you couldn't just look up the wiki or something, which is what I kind of thought at first. And he says, Parker's an agent of the Grey. And then the roommate shows up with a shotgun and says, don't mess with a woman's refrigerator and shoots him out the window, which I loved. Um, and also is legal uh, due to the stand your ground law in New York. I looked up just to make sure it feels like, you know, this is an actual use case for a gun that's totally above board. And I wanted to check. And then the flash sees the extremist fall out of the window. So he's able to see him just fine. And then the extremist does a reading on Flash and says, you know, thank you for the service to our country, which how did you know? Which is a fair question. You know, how is he able to size it up? Because Flash is wearing, you know, an undershirt and pants. So, and then Spider-Man swings out and now he can see the extremist. No explanation. I guess the shotgun blast took away the, the, the shine, the glimmer, whatever it is. So... <laughs> At this point, we actually have a note that, you know, Parker disappeared and his roommate's pissed. And then we get Extremist meeting Spider-Man, which is actually kind of a big deal because this is the Extremist's hero. And Spider-Man's, you know, laying into this guy saying like, well, you know, like, you know, killing people who criticize me, that's not how I roll. And, you know, laying it in that this guy's wrong to kill, but the Extremist is saying basically like, I do what you cannot and should not. I eliminate those who would drag you from your rightful pedestal down into the gray. And then he noticed that his aura is the same as Parker's. And I want to note, he never puts two and two together, uh, which is weird. Uh, so then the extremist reads Parker's roommate who's run down with a shotgun into the street and says that she was a public defender, but then once she tried and realized nobility was its only reward, you abandoned it, and then gets basically says he's going to kill her, and then Flash and Spidey get in the way. The extremist grabs Flash and the roommate, and then flies up, and then drops them in a morally gray way. But in doing so, he reads Spider-Man again more closely, saying, you're so concerned with making the wrong decision, you make no decision, those around you suffer, which makes no flippin' sense, because this is calling back to Amazing Fantasy 15. We're at brand new day. I, dear lord, would hope the moral, you know, moment of what would have been, I don't know, decades even by continuity standards at this point would have faded somewhat? I, I don't know. It, it really bothered me, because, I mean, this is late-stage Spider-Man, in some ways older than the Spider-Man we have currently. So, I don't know, that, that bothered me. And then we get the two falling. Spider-Man saves them both by webbing up everywhere, but, oh, the police are mad because he webbed them too because he closed his eyes to put on his best daredevil, and uh, I don't get it? Like, wouldn't it have been faster to look at what you're trying to save? So that moment rang flat for me. 
Anyways, Spider-Man goes and to the Avengers Tower to hit up Wolverine to hit up the X-Men for their phone number, and he's talking to Cyclops, which there's a bit of a leap here. He assumes that this guy is a mutant. Why? There's so many weird superpower people and Spider-Man runs into more than most. Why would he think he's a mutant necessarily? Like there's no reason to not think it's magic or anything else because this guy has a bizarro power set, but I guess we get there. Cyclops asks for his power set and then says it's Tyler Smithinson who was the boy who was rejected earlier. Frankly, I think the story would have played better if we had the reveal and then those opening pages here, because, I mean, it just, it reads pretty obvious the way it is. Um, and then we get a bit with the extremists in his place, and he has this big old picture of Spider-Man, and then he rips it in half because now he realizes Spider-Man is an agent of the Grey. And then he looks to his TV, and Mayor J. Jonah Jameson is... <sighs> looking at the financials of dealing with the various bits of mostly what happened during the gauntlet, uh, which I think is a fun bit, but he goes to City Hall to deal with Jameson, and then the people at City Hall get one of those Yumi cards. But again, this guy's color scheme is blue and white, not black and white, but the cards are black and white. Okay. It's It bothers me so. So <laughs> there we go. Click into the next issue. We're at issue 10, and there's a lot of hubbubaloo about getting to this bunker in City Hall where they're taking Jameson. And then his two Jameson's two guards get shot, and we're in it. Um, Spider-Man had found a clue at Tyler's place. He's able to find the place because he had his name and was able to look it up, which is illegal. Um, and then... Is on the way to City Hall because he found a picture of City Hall there. So obviously the guards get mad at Spider-Man, which is fair. Um, and then one of the guards talks some sense in them because Spider-Man's a good guy. We all know that and you should know that by now, I'd hope. <sighs> I'm sorry to just go through the plot, but I mean, it's <sighs> there's not much in this issue other than plot to talk around. So I don't know. In here, we get a flashback to Jameson, and the the editor's note is ASM number one talking about Jameson's son's launch, but also goes through a bit of the other main things Jameson's done to fight Spider-Man, all out of quote-unquote jealousy, which makes him an agent of the gray and bad. But then he says, Spider-Man is a menace to every citizen of the city. And so the extremist agrees because that's his target now as well, which is a hard shift. It's hard for me to look at the extremists and not see a zealot. And if a zealot is molding their sense of morality around someone, they find that person against the morality, that would shake them to their core. Like that would be a reason to make this guy crazy and, you know, up the action. But for him to just roll with it and be like, oh no, he's an agent of the gray now. Like, where's he sort, like, where's his baseline? Where's he sourcing himself? Cause he knows he's kind of outside of his morality. So it just doesn't make sense from a philosophical or psychological standard. Um, but they fight, yada yada. <laughs> and we get a bit about how the extremist's mother died. And then because of some way that the extremist said his powers worked, um, Spider-Man deduces that there are residue of bioelectrical reactions inside cells. 
So he pulls out a gadget that he used against the Vulture in issue two of The Amazing Spider-Man to deal with him, which, okay, this guy has flight. He has the ability to make himself intangible and not like invisible, but selectively invisible and read people in unspecific but fairly deep ways um that's a heck of a power set but basically after his mom died he took the money and paid someone to like inject him with superpowers so okay um i'm still not 100 percent on how all his powers work or how because they're electrically based he's able to read people the way he does so i don't know the the other thing i'd know is that the closest he gets to saying there's someone who's in the white that's good throughout this entire ordeal is Flash. But he notices Gray and Flash too and talks about how he's able to overcome his aggression of being a bullying channel into something healthier. But it's only after that point that he's willing to drop Flash all of the last issue. But throughout this entire deal, he doesn't run across anyone that he considers to be in the white. There's no one that is actually good, because once he actually met Spider-Man, he found him to be gray. We could read into that in a number of different ways, but without any kind of counterbalance or actual acknowledgement of that within the story, because no one else could read it, so it would have to come from the extremists to acknowledge it. It doesn't read as much of a philosophical, like, moment at all, nor does this character really grow for it. So, I don't know, we get to this conclusion where Jameson's still in the bunker, Spider-Man drags the extremists down there to the bunker, they open the door, but in doing so, it's a trap, these laser gatling guns go off. Um, Spider-Man uses a mirror to protect himself mostly, and then the extremist gets shot five ways to Sunday, but in doing so, he views himself in the mirror and reads himself, and reads himself much like Jameson, full of jealousy. And he looks like he's dead, but Spider-Man says he's off to go get a medic, so I guess all is well. Jameson's still mad at Spider-Man. There's a call back to the website from issue one where some pictures are posted of Jameson uh, in what some workers at Frontline describe as a BDSM situation. So, or, or an SNM stuff. Great. Uh, <laughs> I just throw that in as a side note, because that's all it is. So, I don't know. How do I feel about this story? Confused and mixed. I think there's a character here with some potential. He has enough of a power set, more so really, to be a huge threat and also to kind of set up some potential mysteries or ideas. Um, I, I think he could make a cool Spider-Man villain, and I like the morality play of that, of dealing with someone who who really, with a little bit more of a deft hand, could be kind of this villainous objectivist running around, which would be a, a cool idea. I like the idea of more of a straight morality villain for Spider-Man. We've definitely had some but I, I think this is a cool idea, but the mismanagement and the just confusion around this guy's powers and too much is set around his powers don't really bring the story to fruition. And so there's a lot of cool and fun and interesting ideas in here. There's some good moments. This is a decent Spider-Man story, but there's... It feels like there's more to it, and it didn't need more pages. It maybe needed a couple smaller elements plucked out for 
just a skosh more space and just a, a clear line of what we're trying to question within Peter via this villain because we get so close he's questioning his origins he's questioning his stance as Spider-Man like is he doing the right thing but the problem is is with this guy running around shooting people and declaring everyone to be monsters there's no there's no actual gray space there's no morality to be questioned this guy is a murderer there is no moral justification for him and in such he loses all of his complexity and all of his potential, and thus the story does as well, because this is just the villain versus Spider-Man as a story. So, oof. I'm sorry, this is a longer episode. The rest will be shorter. Cheers, be well, and keep swinging.